strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient history. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. We're going to visit the Phoenicians, Phoenicians on the coastal area of Palestine. The Phoenicians sin sex and Sinai. That's an interesting topic, isn't it? But we're going to understand how to preserve our most important relationships in life as we journey through this uh, session together. You have probably noticed over the years that violence has been on the increase in our own country here. You think about the family breakups that are taking place in our world today. It's quite tragic to see what's taking place in the fabric of the home today. Think about the increase in vandalism. I travel a lot on the trains when we were living on the central coast here to Sydney every day. And, you know, oftentimes it's, you know, you see the graffiti all on the sides of trains and so on and so forth. It seems that people have not the same respect for the property of other people today in many places and in many ways in the world. Think of the increase in pornography today and the, the, the industry, the sex trade and so on. We wonder what's going on in the world today and the child abuse, little children abused sexually like this going on around the world today. When you think of these things, we wonder where are we headed as a civilization? On top of that, we have corporate greed and corruption in high places, political corruption and so on. Some places around the world today, the, the whole country is collapsing under a weight of corruption among political leaders and so on. It seems when we think about it that the world has lost its moral compass. We seem to be losing our direction in life as a civilization today. Things are not the same as they once were. And let me tell you, there are serious consequences for such global lawlessness that's increasing in our world today. I mentioned Sir Arnold J. Toynbee, that British historian who studied those 21 world civilizations, asking the question, why do they disintegrate and collapse? What's the factors? I want you to notice one of them among the six reasons that he discovered was this one here. It was called abandon, number six. What does he mean when he says abandon? He puts it this way, a state of mind that accepts antinomianism. That's a fancy English word which basically means lawlessness. A state of mind that accepts lawlessness as a substitute for creativeness. Sort of the more anti the establishment, the more creative we think people are, sort of thing. This is the idea of abandon, he says. Abandon or lawlessness, this is one of the reasons why ancient civilizations collapsed and disintegrated. And today in our world, we are fast reaching the global tipping point where we've gone too far beyond pulling it back. That's the way we're headed. If we don't do something, well, thank God that he is concerned about that. And in the book of Revelation, we have the key to turn things around right here in this book, as you're going to see. John, in the book of Revelation, sees those three angels. Remember, we noticed them the other day. They are flying across the midnight heavens. They are the world's last messages before time runs out. In the first angel's message, which we started to look at yesterday, we noticed something interesting. 
But we also didn't focus on one of the things that I want to talk about today. Notice what John says. I saw another angel and thank God that in the book of Revelation, and by the way, I was just talking to someone out of the exhibit. One of the keys to understanding the book of Revelation, which many people say you cannot understand, but which is quite quite wrong because the book Revelation means a revealing and we're promised blessed are those who read it and hear it and put it into practice. Jesus the Christ gave this book. You will understand this book in this series. You'll understand the heart of it as we go through these next few programs together. But one of the ways to understand it is to have a basic understanding of the temple services because through the book of Revelation you have things from the temple. For example, 28 times the Lamb of God is mentioned in Revelation. You have the Ark of the Covenant in Revelation. You have the seven branch candlesticks mentioned in Revelation. You have the altar of incenses mentioned there and so on. There's lots of imagery there from the temple and to understand that book we needed to understand a little of the basic material from the sanctuary but John says I saw another angel and thank God in revelation angels are flying in every direction because there's an urgency for the human race and that's the way this book comes out there's an urgency and God is sending angels to help the world in the midst of heaven he's flying having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth saying with a loud voice and this we did not hone in on yesterday saying with a loud voice fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. What a very relevant message for the world today because we live in a world where we don't even believe many people that he even exists. Yet to such a time as this, like no other time in history, there is a call to fear God. Now what does it mean to fear God? Does it mean to bite our fingernails? Well, it certainly means, number one, that we should take God seriously. He is not the buddy next door, as we say. He is God Almighty, our Father, the eternal God, the all-powerful God, the holy and awesome God. So we should take God seriously, but it means more than that. In the Bible, in the writings of the Scriptures here, the biblical manuscripts, it means to love God with awe and respect and reverence, to respect God. So how do you do that? How do we fear God? Because that's the call to the human race today. Love God, respect God, stand in awe of God. How do we do that? John tells us very clearly. I should say Moses tells us very clearly in Deuteronomy. Moses writes, fear the Lord your God as long as you live. Notice he says how? By keeping all his decrees and his commandments. This is how we show our respect or our fear of God. Now, what commandments is Moses and what commandments uh, does he have in mind? Well, let's notice. When we go to the book of Revelation, right in the center part of the book, Revelation shows us final events. And we're going to be getting into this this coming weekend, next weekend. The first final events are portrayed in Revelation's center point. Notice what the Bible says. John says he saw that the nations were angry and the real wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. That means God's friends and those who fear your name, who respect and stand in awe of you. Notice that. 
Then he says, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. That's why we said if we want to understand Revelation, we need to understand all basic things about the temple. John says the temple of God was opened in heaven. Heaven is not the temple. He says the temple was opened in heaven. And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. Now, this is interesting. John says, in the final climactic events of Earth's history, when the nations are angry and the time has come for the judgment of the world, he says, the temple of God was opened and inside the temple was seen the Ark of his covenant. Now, some of you saw Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember that story? Fictitious story. But what was Indiana Jones running around looking for? And all of that film. What was the film all about? Well, he's after what? The Ark of the covenant. Of course, he doesn't have an understanding that the Bible has, but that's what he's looking for, this Ark of the Covenant. Now, when you go to the Sinai Desert, as I mentioned, not only was Moses given the pattern of the temples that the Israelites eventually set up, but he was also given the sacred Ten Commandments. Here on Mount Sinai, this is the traditional place where they say Moses was given the Ten Commandments. We cannot be sure. We don't really know. But this is the traditional place. It was here on this mountain that he received the famous Ten Commandments. Let's read it here. It says, so he declared to you, that's God, declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. I'll be taking you to the ancient Hittites in a future program and you'll see the significance of two tablets of stone. But just for tonight, let's notice what this is about. He wrote them on two tablets of stone. Now, the Ten Commandments, you notice there, are called the Covenant right here in the writings of Moses. Now, you'll also notice that God wrote them himself. In fact, he wrote them twice himself. You may recall the story that when Moses went up to the mount and brought the commandments back that God had written with his own finger, that when he came down from the mountain, the Israelites had made a golden calf, much like the Egyptians worshipped the the cow and so on. Now they were doing the same thing. And Moses took those commandments and he broke them. He smashed them on the ground because they had broken the covenant. And then he went back up to the mountain after some time and God wrote them a second time. And that's how we read it right here. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke and you shall put them in the ark. Now, this is not Noah's ark. The ark means a box. So when Moses received these commandments, and by the way, of all the words in this book, These are the only ones that God wrote with his own finger, according to the Bible. He wrote them with his own finger. You probably saw Cecil B. DeMille's film, The Ten Commandments. There's that fire finger for writing those commandments. Well, who knows how it happened, but that's the way Hollywood portrayed it. So he wrote them, and then Moses put those commandments in the ark. So this is the way they were handled. So the Ten Commandments, or the covenant, are placed inside the ark. That's why it's called what? The Ark of the Covenant. Because the Ark or the box contained the Ten Commandments that God had written with his own finger. And they were placed in the temple of the Israelites, the box itself. Now, John says in the book of Revelation now, dealing with the end time crisis, he says, the Ark of the Covenant was opened in heaven's temple on the day of judgment we just read. What is going on here? A 
the Ten Commandments are being highlighted in the final stages of earth's history. That's what's going on. When the nations are angry, the Ten Commandments are, as it were, coming to the attention of human beings during earth's final crisis. This is the way John is portraying it for us. God, you see, in Revelation is calling the world back to these ten great principles, and you're going to understand why in just a moment. Very clearly, he tells us why. First of all, the Ten Commandments, or the covenant, they define and they protect our most important relationships on planet Earth. No question about it. In fact, the first four protect our relationships this way with God himself. You will notice as we briefly, quickly look at these Ten Commandments that were written by God himself. You shall have no other gods before me is the first commandment. This commandment tells us that only the only God is a relational being. He doesn't want anything to come between us and him. He wants to be number one in our life for a very good reason, we'll see. The only God that there is is a relational being, and I'm glad for that. He keeps, he, he seeks the first place in your life and my life. And that's what he's telling the Israelites. I noticed this sign one day, uh, fascinating sign, for sale it was in the newspaper, fridge, golf clubs, used sofa, 13-inch TV and other household gods. You see, someone had misspelt goods and the goods became gods. The point is, we can turn our goods into our gods, can we not? They can be the first priority in our lives. And I think the sign got it right there. You know, we have many gods that we can have in our lives today, which actually take first place. They take up our time, our energy, and we have no time left to spend and think about the God who made us and the God who cares for us and the God who loves us. We can have many different gods, not just some statue. can be all sorts of things today that are number one priority in our life. Many different idols that we can have today. Second commandment reads this way. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That word jealous there in yellow there is a very important word. It's a relational word, is it not? It's a, this is telling us that God is not just a God of relationships, but of loving relationships. He gets hurt when someone else takes first place in our life. It hurts him. He's a jealous God. You, you, you understand the term. Here's my wife here. I wish she was with us today, but she's not. She's down in Hobart, where we're living now. But you imagine if she heard that I was making eyes for some of the women up here at our program. She would get jealous, wouldn't she? And rightfully so, because I belong to her and she belongs to me. That's the way it is, you see. And God is using this relational term to say that's how it is with you and me. I love you, I care about you, and I'm jealous when you don't put me in the right place. A beautiful term. Sir Arnold J. Toynbee, as he's examining those different civilizations, why did they disintegrate and collapse? It's interesting. One of the things he came up with in his mammoth study is this, idolatry. 
Notice what he says about this. He says, In the sin of idolatry, through a worship of the creature instead of the creator, we have found one of the causes of those breakdowns from which the disintegrations of civilizations follow, says Toynbee. Idolatry. There we see it, and there it was in that second commandment. The third commandment says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, of course, this is more than sort of letting the words fly out of our mouth when we sort of get cutting on in the traffic or we smash our hammer, our finger with a hammer or something and we blaspheme the name of God and we use his name. Of course it means that, but it means more than that. To the people of God who are... God said this, it means when we claim to be the followers of God, but we don't live like them. I have lived in some places where people claim to be Christian, but they steal people's stuff the next day. And some of those people are Hindus and you wonder, they, you can understand why they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus Christ because his followers steal their stuff and so on. You see, the way people live says something about their God, not quite the full impact, or it shouldn't be that way, but that's the way people think. Well, if that's what your God's like, he's like you, then I don't want to have anything to do with your God. So we take his name in vain. That's one of the things he's pointing out. If we say we're a follower of God, then live like it. This is what he has in mind as well. Number three means God is a God of integrity. He's a transparent God. What he says he is, he is. And he wants us to be the same. What we claim to be, he wants us to be like that. God is a God of integrity, and I'm glad about that, a transparent God. He's not something that he says he is not. He is exactly what he claims to be. The fourth commandment is a beautiful one. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. This is a beautiful commandment because it says God is our father friend. How so, you wonder? How does this commandment show that? Well, it's this way, you see. It requires time to build relationships. Isn't that not true? That's one of the reasons why today relationships are crumbling in our world today. We are so busy. We have no time sometimes for our kids, our wife, our husband. We're just on the move, our spouse. We just don't have the time. And it takes time, quality time, to build relationships. And it's the same with God. He says, I love you. I care about you. You're my children. I want you to take time out so that you can build that relationship with me. What an amazing God that is. He says, take the whole day off with me. What a tremendous commandment. Time to build a relationship with the God of heaven. Now you think about it. These first four commandments protect our relationship with God. Why does God put these first? For a very good reason. You see, he says, if you put me first in your relationships, then all your other relationships will last. And it's true. Because if someone says he loves God, but he cheats on his wife or so on and so forth, he, he, he knows he's out of relationship with God. If I love God and I'm going to treat people with respect and dignity, I'm going to treat people in the right way because of my relationship to him, because he shows me how to relate to other people. So this is the reason he says, put me first, and then all your other relationships will last the distance. What a tremendous uh, principle here. Put me first. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, that today our world is crumbling, because most people today in Western countries have forgotten God. 
Therefore, we do not understand how to treat people correctly today in our world. Treat them and their property and relationships because we have forgotten God. Therefore, we don't listen to his instructions as to how to relate to other people. One of the great reasons why we are falling apart at the seams socially today in many ways. The last six relationships protect our relationships with others, with fellow human beings. Notice the first of the last six, the fifth commandment, honour your father and your mother. Notice this commandment tells us that God is a selfless God. He shares respect with others, those who brought us into the world. Now, some of us, true, don't have much of a father or of a mother. There are some of us in that situation. I was fortunate to have good parents, but some of us have not had that privilege. But let me say that we can all be thankful for the fact that at least we're here. (laughs) And God says, honour your parents and your father and your mother. The most basic of human relationships is the family. And this is one of the reasons why the family is under attack today, because the enemy of all of us knows that as, as the family goes, so goes society. Society is built on the home. And the most basic of human relationships is being protected here by this commandment. Protects the family. Commandment number six, you shall not kill. What is this telling us? God values all people. He just says, full stop, you shall not kill. Take the lives of others seriously. They are his children just as we are. He values all people according to this commandment. Commandment number seven now. Not only does God's commandment protect life, but it says God's commandment protects our relationships with our spouses. You shall not commit adultery. What is this telling us? It's telling us this. Our God is faithful. What he promises, he will do. And he wants us to be the same to those to whom we have made promises. God values faithfulness. Tragically, until more recent times, it used to be this way. Until death, we do part. But as time has moved on in our society today, in Western society, it is now until we do part. Sometimes it's just a matter of there's greener grass on the other side of the fence and so on. And many homes are broken today because of this commandment. But not only the home, not only the marriage, but even our health is being affected. Jesus said when he talked about this commandment, he said, Adultery is more than just sleeping with somebody who we shouldn't be sleeping with. He says it's to lust after a woman. And men, you know, one of the great problems in society today, if I can say it point blank, is pornography. How do you think your spouse feels when we are looking at the body and lusting after someone else? Do you think it makes her feel good? This is one of the great reasons for strain in relationships today, this area. God's commandments protect marriage and the family relationship, but they also protect our health. You will notice, I noticed this in the Sydney Morning Herald, about HIV, AIDS and sexually transmitted diseases. People aged between 20 and 29 are the, the group at highest risk for sexually transmitted diseases. The highest risk, including HIV AIDS. Why is this the case today that we have this problem? What are one of the reasons I should say? It's this, when we think about it. 
Here are the reasons. We initiate sexual intercourse early today as teenagers. And globally, one third of all new cases of sexually transmitted diseases are under 25 because of this trend that's getting even younger and younger as time goes on. We marry late today compared to our parents and grandparents, which means we have more sexual partners because we're marrying later and so on. Number three, we divorce often today, much more often than our forefathers used to. So we have more sexual partners. There's another reason why we have these problems. And finally, you know, in Australia, we average seven, 13 sexual partners in, in this country in a lifetime. I was astounded to hear of New Zealand. Women in New Zealand were the highest in the world when I looked up the statistics two or three years back, 29 sexual partners in a lifetime. It's unbelievable. But this is the way the world is moving today, and this is the reason. And God has given this commandment to protect our health as well as our relationships. And so we can be thankful for that commandment which is given to us, and that's one of the reasons God wrote this down on these tables of stone. Number eight commandment, you shall not steal. And God here is protecting our ownership. He respects ownership. What's yours is not mine. <laughs> this is very clear from this commandment here that God has given us. We should respect what belongs to other. God's commandment protect our possessions. Many people today think what is yours is mine. It's certainly not the case as far as God is concerned. Commandment number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, meaning you shouldn't lie. God is a God, you see, of truthfulness. What a world it would be if people were truthful with their mouth. How different society would be just in this one issue of truthfulness. I, when I travel on the Sydney trains in the afternoon, like many of you, you pick up the MX magazine. I was astounded to learn on one day that Australians, one third of us, lie to get a job. We don't see too much a problem with lying to get a job. God is saying here, honesty matters. If we can't trust someone's word, where are we going to end? Because when we lose trust, we lose big in relationships. God's commandments, you see, protect our reputation because many people today think that by telling a white lie, that's the way to advance upwards. Criticize, gossip about others. We're not sure it's true. Even, even if it is true, we shouldn't be saying some of the stuff. But when we tell White lies about others. We destroy people's reputations. How many people have been ruined the rest of their life because of the breaking of this important commandment? The last commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his male servants. Well, probably there's too many servants these days. Nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's, including his MG or whatever it is, his car. What's going on here with this commandment is something very important. God is saying here, I provide for your needs. We can be content with what we have. What a world it would be if we were content with what we have in life today instead of wanting what Mr. and Mrs. Jones have next door and so on. But isn't it the case today that this is actually putting a lot of strain on people's pocketbooks as well? The idea of keeping up with the rest. We want what they've got. We want the latest gadgets, in fact. <laughs> a lot of that goes on. You as parents know some of this too, don't you? You know, you've got to have the latest whatever it is for the kids at school and so on. Because the kids, the pressure there. 
Be content with what you have. This is the principle that's coming in this commandment. I'll provide your needs. You see, God's commandment protects our emotional well-being. That's the point of this final commandment. Our emotional well-being is protected. We can just continue on in life. We can be content with what we have in life. No wonder Billy Graham, that great preacher for many years in America, said this about the Ten Commandments. God's law is never out of date. And you just think how different our country would be, this city would be, if we all followed those principles. Just think what would the difference would be in Sydney. The police would be out of a job. Many things would be so different if those principles were put into practice. Well, this is what God is doing. He's bringing us back to his law of love at a time when the world is at the tipping point. John in the Revelation is highlighting this great, important these great important principles. So number one, these Ten Commandments are brought to the attention of people at such a time as this because they define and they protect the most important relationships that we all have in life today. Second thing about these commandments is this. These Ten Commandments reveal or point out our sin or our wrongdoing for a very good reason at such a time as this. Notice the way the Bible puts it here. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? This is talking about the Ten Commandments. Certainly not. On the contrary, says Paul, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not, he says, I would not have known covetousness unless the law, meaning the Ten Commandments, had said you shall not covet. In other words, one of the great reasons for the commandments is to show us where we're wrong. Now, we, we, it's good for that. We need to be shown. We need to make a course correction in life. What sort of people would we be if we just went on doing the wrong thing and nobody told us anything and showed us the right way? One of the great reasons for the Ten Commandments is to point out where we're wrong so we can make a course correction. In other words, the Ten Commandments are like a mirror. When we look in the mirror, we see our dirt. In other words, when we look in the commandments of God, we see our sin. And this is very helpful to us, as we're going to see in just a moment. Let's talk about sin for just a moment. It's a little word, but man does it have some significant consequences. We slip over it so easily sometimes and treat it so lightly sometimes as human beings. What is sin? The Bible gives us a definition of sin. John, one of the followers of Jesus, wraps it up very succinctly here. He says, sin is the transgression or the breaking of the law. Now, the Ten Commandments, you remember, we saw they define and they protect our most important relationships in life. That's the way we we noticed it. So really, at its heart, sin is not something we do or something we don't do. It's about breaking relationships. That's what sin is really all about. You see, Isaiah gave a very clearly relational picture of sin here in his writings, and we notice they were in the Dead Sea Scrolls. He says, but your iniquities, that's a fancy word for sin, your sins have separated you from your God. They've broken your relationship with God. Your hands, and then he says how? Your hands are defiled with blood. They've been killing and injuring people deliberately. Your fingers with iniquity. They've been stealing stuff. Your lips, he says, your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. They've been telling whoppers and so on. So he says all of that, sin breaks relationships with God. They've separated us from him. That's why, you see, when 
if you remember the story of Jesus on the cross, at the cross we noticed yesterday, he took our sins. But what did he cry out when he was dying on the cross? How did he respond when the load of the sins of the whole world were upon him? From beginning to end, everybody's sin was upon him. How did he respond? What did he say? My God. My God, why have you what? Why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Because sin separates from God and Jesus felt that for every one of us when he died on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? That's why Jesus put it this way. If you love me, he said, you will keep my commandments because that's what they're all about. At the end of them, it's about a love relationship with God and other people. Now, Christ wrote these commandments himself. He was the great lawgiver. He said to the Jewish people, he said, before Abraham was, I am. I am that Jehovah of the Old Testament that was with Israel. Paul says that rock that followed them, that rock was Christ, where they got the water from. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians. He's the great lawgiver. If you love me, keep my commandments. So sin is breaking relationships. In other words, when we do wrong, somebody gets hurt. Somebody gets hurt, especially God. A young boy in India was looking after the family goats in the backyard and the goats were playing up and he got, he got sick about the whole thing and got angry and he picked up his bush knife, we're talking blade this long, and he flung it at the goat, he missed the goat, hit his sister and killed his sister. And that's like it is with sin. When we sin, somebody always gets hurt. God, ourselves, and someone else. That's the big deal about sin, hurting other people and God. Is breaking the Ten Commandments that much of a deal? Is it really that much of a big deal? Come with me to the ancient civilization of Israel. Sadly, when you go through the history of Israel, for much of their history, they themselves did not follow these Ten Commandments. As you check right on down through their history, it's a sad story, actually. They disobeyed, they turned away from the Ten Commandments that God gave them. For example, here we are in Rosh Shamra, or Ugarit, as it's called for the, in the ancient world. This is in Syria today. And you can visit this place. Archaeologists excavated this place some years ago now. But when they excavated this place, they discovered the practices, the beliefs, the culture and the customs of the Canaanites. And it became very plain to scholars why God said in the Bible, don't have anything to do with the ways of the Canaanites because of the, the, the terrible destroying practices and beliefs of the Canaanites whose land they moved into. For example, here we have on display here, uh, on the left-hand side, there is Baal, the great god of the Canaanites. He's got his club lifted. He's the god who makes the rains fall. He's the god that makes the crops grow, Baal. He has a wife known as Asherah on the far right. She's his sister. They were into incest in the, among the Canaanites. In the middle is his female consort, a seductive goddess known as Ashtati or as Tanit to the people of Carthage. Now we have on display this afternoon Asherah, you'll see her, and Ashtati on display there in uh, the exhibition room. So have a look at those two goddesses of the Canaanites. Now they got into terrible things in the beliefs and practices of the Canaanites. For example, when you go to Carthage, Carthage is in North Africa in Tunisia, 
You can visit there. We remember a terrorist attack here just a year or two back. Many people were killed on the beaches, as you recall, there by some terrorists. In Carthage, which was a colony of the Phoenicians as they travelled all across the Mediterranean region, they set up a colony in Carthage, and archaeologists have discovered what the Canaanites were really like in their practices. They had temple prostitutes. If you went to a temple as a woman, you could have sex with a male prostitute. If you're a, a, a man, you have a female prostitute to serve you. This is the sort of religion that the Canaanites were into. That would do great things for the family, wouldn't it? You come home from the temple and you say, well, I had sex with a lady down there at the temple, and you, your wife's going to say, well, that's lovely, isn't she? Of course she's not. Imagine how the relationships in the home were fractured and the tremendous disruption to the home unit that must have taken place in these homes in the ancient world because of such practices. But more than that, down here in Carthage, we can see a colony of these Phoenicians. And we come here to a Tophet. What's a Tophet? A Tophet is a, a place where children who were sacrificed as human sacrifices are buried. A burial place for child sacrifice victims. Scholars, archaeologists have estimated that in this one Tophet here in Carthage, there are some, which is about 6,000 square metres, by the way, 64,000 square feet of Tophet, there are some 20,000 child sacrifice victims here from the time of 400 to 200 BC. When the Romans came to Carthage in their wars with the Carthaginians, they were abhorred at the human sacrifice that took place here in Carthage among the Canaanites. And this has been taking place back in Israel. You can see here are these steely, like you see over here, these like a tombstone. Underneath each of these, you'll notice these little urns here, these little pots. And inside these pots on the far right, there are the charred bones of little children who have been sacrificed to these pagan gods and goddesses, Baal and Tanit and so on. In fact, you can see the charred bones of a little child here, the black up the top of that bone here and various other bones and amulets that they were put with the children. You can see the god Tanit, Tanit over here, Ashtati. And then in the middle, he's a priest carrying a little baby to be sacrificed on their great gods. They had these great gods that had a fire, and they made these things red hot and then placed the children in the arms of these gods, all in the worship of their pagan gods. No wonder God said, don't have anything to do with pagan gods and so on. There's only one God, a true God, and I am that God and I love people and I don't want them to get into this stuff. Well, tragically for Israel, King Ahab married a Phoenician princess who brought with her into Israel all the worship beliefs and practices of the Canaanites into Israel. And of course, what happened? Down the track, we find that the Israelites practiced human sacrifice just like their Canaanite neighbors. You can visit here the valley of Ben-Hinnom in Jerusalem and right here a Tophet was set up by the Israelites. Notice what the prophet Jeremiah says about this. They have built up the high places of Topheth in the valley of Hinnom to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. And then God goes on to say something I never asked them to do, never wanted them to do, to kill their children as human sacrifices. Not at all do I want them to do that sort of stuff. So you see Israel turned from the Ten Commandments and their, 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 their society began to crumble. And that's why God sent prophets 
Most of the Old Testament, when you read of men like Jeremiah and Isaiah and these prophets, these are the prophets of Israel calling the Israelites to come back to the Ten Commandments. They've turned from them, repent, come back, and live according to the way God wants you to live so you can be truly happy. But they would not listen. And what was the so what? Well, after the prophets were ignored, 722 BC, the Assyrians came down and they destroyed the northern kingdom with its capital at Samaria, because Israel had split in two and had had a civil war at one point, and then they were two different nations. And so the Assyrians, those cruel, barbaric people, they destroyed the northern kingdom and scattered the people around the Mediterranean world, especially in Mesopotamia. Then in 586, after another hundred years of time for the people down in the south, God sent prophets like Jeremiah and so on. They would not listen. They put Jeremiah in prison. And so the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. And this is the sad history of the nation of Israel in much of the Old Testament period. God trying to bring these people back to the Ten Commandments, those great principles. When Daniel the prophet is in Babylon and the 70 years of God's people in Babylon is up, he's praying. I want you to notice we've talked about his prayer and this great prophecy that came after his prayer. Notice what he says in his prayer. We have sinned, talking of Israel. All Israel has transgressed your law, broken your commandments, in other words, has departed from God, in other words. We've departed from you so as not to obey your voice. Sin, you see, there is a departure from God. It's breaking the relationship with God, says Daniel. We have not obeyed your voice. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. He's allowed it to come to us. This was the reason for Israel going into captivity in Babylon. They had sinned or broken the commandments of God and kept on doing that and would not turn away from that. Toynbee, you were right. Toynbee showed very clearly that when you look at all the different civilizations, one of the great reasons for disintegration and collapse is lawlessness. But Daniel told us that long before Toynbee. In his book, Daniel says it's lawlessness that's the reason for this. This is why civilizations disintegrate, because when we become lawless, that's where we're going to head ourselves. So what, that we break the Ten Commandments today? It's a big so what, according to the Bible. The wages of sin we've seen is death. And he's contrasting it with eternal life. It's destruction. The way Benjamin Franklin put it is this. You, two things in life we can count on, aren't they? Death and taxes. <laughs> we can sure get taxed. We'll get taxed. But one thing's for sure. We might cheat on taxes, but we'll never cheat on death. Our pulse is the funeral march to the tomb. And the reason for it is sin. But thank God. He has a way out. The gift of God is eternal life. There's a way out. But serious consequences to sin. The third thing about the Ten Commandments and why they are brought to light in the end of the world, as Daniel, John saw in Revelation, the nations were angry. The final events have come is this. The Ten Commandments, these very principles, will be the standard of God's great judgment when he judges the world. Notice what James says in his book as he writes to his friends, talking of earth's final events, the final times when the nations are angry and the time of the dead has, the judgment has come as we read there. Notice what James tells us, talking about these times, talking very clearly about the earth's judgment day that has come. Notice what James says. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now, what is the law of liberty? 
James quotes from it right here in that same passage. He says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. In other words, these are going to be the standard in that great time that we're living in today when the final times have come and God is about to usher in this new world. The law of liberty is the Ten Commandments. Now, what's the solution for the breaking of God's laws? Because we've all broken them, if we're honest. We've all broken them. What's the solution? What's the solution for restoring our broken relationship with God? What is the solution for obeying and following God's laws out of love so that we want to follow these great principles which are for our good anyway? Well, let's first of all talk about what is not the solution. Notice what Paul says as he writes to his friends. He says to his friends in Rome, he says, listen, by the deeds of the law, by the doing of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, he's telling us this. He's saying, listen, the Ten Commandments reveal our sin, but they can't remove the sin. You imagine, here's this lady, she looks in the mirror and she's, which is, like the Ten Commandments, it shows us our sin. She looks in the mirror and she sees the dirt. So she, what's she going to do? Get the mirror and wipe it all over her face? No, you're not going to get rid of the dirt that way. The dirt says, you dirty lady, go to the wash basin. And that's what the Ten Commandments say. They tell us, hey, we've got sin stuff. Let's go to the wash basin. That's what they're for. They cannot remove it, but they can point us to the place where it can be removed. So what is the solution for those things? Here is the solution. It's in the message of the first angel who told us the importance of these things. Fear God. How do you fear God? Keep God's commandments. How do you do that? Here it is. Center point of this last, this first angel's message. There it is in yellow. He says the angel has what? The everlasting gospel. I saw that angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, every tribe, every tongue. He says not only that, every person saying with a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come. And there's the solution, the everlasting lasting gospel that's the solution to your problem and my problem and the world's problem today because you see when Paul wrote about to his friends in in his Hebrew friends notice what he said this is the covenant that I will make says the Lord I will put my laws in their minds in other words we will want to follow God and I'll write them on their hearts he says and they will I will be their God and they shall be my people and all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. I will be merciful, he says, to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, he says, I will remember no more. What a great promise. But notice it's called the covenant. This is the covenant, you see, what we call the new covenant in the New Testament. And what is it? He says in summary, it means our past is forgiven. It means, number two, we are the friends of God, yea, the children of God. Number three, we have a new life of powerful, loving living. This is a tremendous thing. And how does it come to us? He tells us how it comes to us in that same book. It comes to us through the greatest story of the greatest lover, God himself. When he gave his son, he says it this way. Now may the God of peace, the God who wants us to have peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, like we'll see in the film Risen next weekend, that great shepherd of the sheep, 
through the blood of the everlasting covenant make you complete in every good work to do his will. What an amazing promise. And theirs is what John saw as well. John in the Revelation, who's the one who said that the greatest need for the world at this time in earth's history, when we do not fear God, when we do not even believe there is a God, he's the one that calls our attention to these great principles. But notice what he wrote. He saw people following these things. And I'm so glad that right across the world, God is sending this message to people, a life-transforming message. Notice what he saw. Here it is in Revelation. In the center point of revelation, in the great final conflict, which we're going to have a look at in the weeks, the days to come. Here is the patience of the saints, God's people. Here are those who keep the commandments of God, he says, and they have what? They have the faith of Jesus. In other words, here are the people who love and obey God because of their trust in Jesus Christ. What an incredible picture there. Now, you know, in closing... I notice that some people think, well, if we're saved by the grace of God, the sheer kindness of God, doesn't that somehow release us from obeying the commandments of God? People think, wonder that. But you notice what John says. He says, he who says I know him, in other words, has a relationship with God and is a friend of God and does not keep his commandments, meaning he just ignores them. He doesn't bother about them. Then he's a liar and the truth is not in him. No, to the contrary. The Bible says very clearly that when we love God, we will follow God. You just imagine what it would be like here in Sydney if uh, you hear about what I got up to over the weekend. Here I am in Sydney in Hornsby. I decided to go for a drive. I borrowed Bob's car here. And I'm tearing off down the streets of Hornsby at 80 kilometres an hour, right around the, the homes of people. And suddenly there's a little blue and red light in the back uh, in the rear vision mirror, I say, oh, no, they've got me. So the policeman comes alongside and he says, hey, buddy, what are you doing 80 kilometres an hour for in a 60K zone? Don't you know that can kill people? That's why we have this rule. We want us to protect our people. I say, sorry, officer, listen, I'm, I, 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 would you give me some grace? Would you let me off the hook this time? Because, you know, I've had a pretty rough weekend. I mean, I, I've, had, I've been busy. You know, I just, just got carried away. Would you give me some grace here, man? Would you cut me some slack? And he looks at me and says, man, you're a pretty handsome fella. Well, he wouldn't have said that, would he? <laughs> he says, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go this time, but don't do it again because we care about our people here in Hornsby. Just don't do it again. So I, 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 I thank the, the policeman. I said, you're terrific, man. Thank you so much. And he smiles. says, but remember, be careful. So I get in the car and uh, I'm traveling now around Hornsby a little bit more. And I think, man, this grace thing, this is sounds fantastic. So I put my foot down and I'm doing 100 k's an hour three hours later around the streets of Hornsby. I'm really going for it. I'm just singing at the top of my voice. Thank God for grace here in Hornsby. And then, lo and behold, I see in the rear vision mirror that red and blue light thing again. And the same cop comes up to me beside the window and says, hey, man, I... Three hours ago, I talked to you about this thing, and you were doing 80. Now you're doing 100. What's with this thing? Ah, it's about grace, man. It's about grace. You gave me grace. That's why I put my foot down. He says, what sort of a person are you? You see the point, don't you? Grace is not a license to trample on the laws. Grace is a meaning, wow, I should appreciate now the tremendous privilege because of such grace and why those laws abound. And so no question, law of God is not absolved because of the grace of God. In fact, grace leads us to obey God and his commandments. It leads us to change our lives from within. 
Grace is the, is, the, is the way our lives are changed, the grace and kindness of God. It happened here in the Wembley Stadium back in the early 1990s. Apartheid had just ended in South Africa thanks to Nelson Mandela. And they had decided in London to have a rock concert here in the Wembley Stadium. And the party or the concert was in full swing. It had been going for you know quite a few hours and the kids were high on drugs and, and beer and so on and so forth. They were really high as a kite. And the organisers of this rock concert had decided that the last uh, item for the night would be sung by an opera singer of all people. What was got into their minds to put heavy metal bands and opera singers together? I don't know. But, you know, that's what they had decided to do. The last item would be from an opera singer by the name of Jesse Norman. Jesse Norman would sing the song to end the show here in the Wembley Stadium. So we go into the dressing room with a TV camera crew who are interviewing Jessie Norman before she's to go out on stage in front of all those young kids, high as a kite, celebrating the end of apartheid. So she sits down with the camera crew and they ask her, Jessie, what are you going to sing? What are you going to sing tonight? She says, well, I'm going to sing the song Amazing Grace. What are you going to sing that song for? She says, well, because it's about the story, she says. The guy who wrote this song was a guy called John Newton living back some years ago now. John Newton, when he was a kid of seven years of age, his mum died at seven years of, when he was just seven years of age, and his father, who was a sailor, took him to sea by the age of 10, and he lived the life of a sailor back then. And, of course, that wasn't generally a good life to live because of the drunkenness and all the other stuff that went with it back in those days. And so John Newton grew up on the seas as a sailor. Eventually, John Newton was able to get his own ship. And he sailed across the ocean from Africa to the Caribbean, selling human cargo. He was a slave trader and a very angry slave trader when he got drunk, which was often when John Newton got drunk, he was violent. The sailors feared him, but most of all, the slaves feared him when they traveled on their ships. You see, when on Newton's ships and other ships in the slave trade, they would stack slaves in like books on a bookshelf. Because the more slaves you got in on the boat, the more money you got at the other end. So they were stacked in, and that's why so many died before they got to the other end. It was an inhuman trade, as you can appreciate. Well, John Newton is in that business, and he's sailing the seas, and one day his ship hits a storm, and the storm nearly tears his ship apart. I mean, he's frightened, he's petrified, but he's, he's a, a, an experienced sailor, but he thinks they're not going to come through this storm. It raged for four days, and Newton was sure that they would never come out of that storm because of how ferocious it was. But amazingly, after four days, it was able to limp into port, very battered. And Newton knew as a sailor that there had been divine intervention. God had saved their life. So Newton began to read the old Bible that his mother had put in his chest some years when he was just a little kid. She'd given him a Bible and he'd put it in the chest. And Newton began to read the Bible for the first time since he'd grown up. And as he read the story of the Bible and the stories of Jesus, something began to speak to his own life. Newton decided that he would give his life to God. 
He became a believer, and as time went on, he realized that the slave trade is not a thing a Christian should be involved in. All children are the children of God. So he gave up his slave trade, and eventually he became a minister of the gospel. And you can visit the church of John Newton today in England. In the only church, this man wrote that famous song called Amazing Grace that we often hear became number one on the hit chart some years ago now. But on his tombstone, and you can see his tombstone in the grave, are these words here that are written on his tombstone. Notice what it says. John Newton, Clark, once an infidel and a libertine, a man who just lived for the moment and so on, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, preserved, saved in that storm, restored, his life was changed, and pardoned. He was forgiven for the stuff he did and appointed to preach the faith he had so long laboured to destroy. He now became like the Apostle Paul sharing that. Well, Jesse Norman tells the story of John Bunyan and then it's time for her to go out on stage. So she goes out on stage there in the Wembley Stadium in front of all these kids, thousands of them in that Wembley Stadium. And when they see her standing there with no backing band, just Jesse standing there, they begin to hiss and to boo and things get pretty ugly in the stadium. They're just ready to tip her out. They're crying out for encores from um, Guns and Roses, some of these heavy metal bands. But Jesse stands her ground and she starts to sing a cappella with no backing music. The words of that song. You know how they go, don't you? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved. There's only an African, uh, an Afro-American can sing it. She sang that song and the stadium began to go quiet. By the time she starts to sing the second and the third verses, the kids are trying to remember the the words from when they went to Sunday school and so on. And by the time she sings the fourth stanza, when we've been there 10,000 years, when she sings that word, the whole Wembley Stadium is singing that song with Jesse Norman. The whole, all those kids singing that song. Well, Jesse goes back into the dressing room and the TV camera people and the interviewer comes to her and says, Jesse, what happened out there? Those kids were ready to tear you apart. You know, the answer was amazing grace. Amazing grace is what makes the difference to our life today. It's what will make the difference to our society through you and me when we accept that amazing grace. It's what made the difference for John Newton. It's what made the difference to those kids in that stadium that night. Amazing grace. What a beautiful thing it is that God gave us that grace, even though every one of us have been really rebels at heart sometimes in our lives. You know, Jesus Christ is coming soon. There's no question. We've seen that in some of these programs already. Program on our first day and the second day last weekend. The end is about to appear for planet Earth, and God loves us all and wants us to be part of that new world. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.